0: All right. Well, good morning, everyone. If you want to make your way in and grab a seat, we can get started this morning with yeah, David as we continue our Heart of the King series. We're just going to go through a dozen or so kings of Israel and Judah and just sort of draw out one defining feature from their reign, one sort of defining feature. Um, yeah feature of God's character and nature that is revealed through their reign, and so the last couple weeks we looked at Saul and fear and the fear of man, and then just yeah, who how God revealed himself through that story. and then the next couple weeks we'll look at David and repentance and the faithfulness of God. but yeah, before we do that, I've got a couple books to hand out. Um, one is just a great commentary of first Samuel, so Um, Hopefully, all of you just take time each day to to be in God's Word, to read God's Word devotionally, personally, prayerfully, humbly, Um, but then sometimes it's just really helpful to slow down and think more carefully about um, the meaning of Scripture, uh, the words in Scripture, the themes of Scripture, and so there's commentaries that can help do that. There's very technical commentaries, but then there's um, other commentaries that are a little bit more accessible. And understandable, and so this is one of those Dale R- Ralph Davis again, really exegetically careful, really careful with the text, but really accessible uh, commentary of 1 Samuel. Like that, great. Then a second, you know, one of the themes we looked at from King Saul is that the fear of man brings a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord is safe. And so that's actually one of the big themes of Scripture is something we call the fear of man when. Um, you know, To put in the words of Ed Welch, when people are big and God is small, that's a way to think about it, where the fear of people is great, the fear of the Lord is small, where desire to please people is great, desire to please the Lord is small, where trust and hope in people and in what they can deliver and provide is big, trust in God and what he can do and provide is small. And so this is a great just book that will be, yeah, convicting, humbling, helpful direct, specific on helping us overcome what he calls peer pressure, codependency, and the fear of man. So who would love to? Great. Well, David, repentance and the faithfulness of God, that's going to be the next couple weeks, and we'll really sort of hit repentance and God's faithfulness, we'll build toward it, and those will be some of the major themes for next week, but a lot of... Today we'll be just kind of building toward David's repentance and faithfulness and giving a context for his repentance and the faithfulness of God. And so as we jump in, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do pray that you would open our hearts to receive from your word this morning. We do pray that you would humble us through your word, that you would convict us through your Word, that you would comfort us through your Word, that you would display your glory through your Word, that you would teach us from your Word, that you would grow us through your Word, you would conform us to the image of Christ through your Word, that your Spirit would prevail upon us to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, to desire you above all other desires, to desire fellowship with you above all other fellowship, to be so concerned and disturbed and grieved by our sin that we would cling to Christ and depend upon Christ for reconciliation to you, that we would be so moved by your grace and by your mercy and by just a way of salvation that you have provided for us, that we would do nothing but trust in you and be thankful for you and spend all of our lives communing with you and worshiping you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, there's an article I came across my desk a few weeks back on the top sort of 20 treasure hunting shows on television over the last sort of few years. I didn't realize it, but evidently these have become a really big deal, like on Discovery Channel and History Channel and all kinds of other channels, just these treasure hunting. But yeah, the... Cooper's Treasure, Curse of Oak Island, Digger's Treasure Quest, Snake Island, lots of islands. The Curse of Civil War Gold, American Digger, Legend of the Superstition Mountains, The Safe Crackers, Secrets of the Underground, on and on and on. And millions and millions of people will watch it. Millions and millions of people will be fascinated by this theme of Seeking and finding treasure, and of course, in all these cases, the treasure is gold or diamonds or jewels or material things. And what it really stood out was just how enamoring this is to a human being, to all of us, the idea of seeking treasure, finding treasure. And it really made me think, when you even look at the scripture, that people really are, they're hardwired to seek treasure. We're all hardwired to seek treasure. We get up in the morning and we pursue stuff. We go after things that we think are valuable to us. So in many ways, the question isn't, do you seek treasure? We all do. I think the question is, what treasure? Who is our treasure? What do we prize above everything else? King Saul feared man. He prized their approval. We'll see from David, he's gonna fear God. He's going to prize his approval. King Saul sought out his own kingdom. That's what he treasured. David will seek the kingdom of God. That's what he'll treasure. King Saul concerned himself with personal glory. Those were the jewels that he was after, wanted to preserve. David concerned himself with God's glory. And so we really can't understand even the repentance of David. One of the things we'll see, especially next week, is repentance was a way of life for him. But we can't really understand that repentance without understanding how much he treasured God, how much he prized Christ, how much he sought the presence of God, the face of Christ, and wanted to spend his time with him, wanted to dwell with him forever that repentance is always a relational thing. We can make it unrelational, as if it's just, okay, we feel bad about sin, we don't wanna be punished, and so we repent. But yet, Scripture is always showing us that repentance is always meant to be a relational thing, something between us and the Lord, something that is preserving and restoring of the treasure that we have with God. Psalm 27, eight, these are the words of David, He says to God, you said, seek my face. Your face, Lord, do I seek. What a great statement. It's that simple. Lord, you told me to seek your face. I'm going to seek your face. Matthew 6.33, Jesus says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you as well. All the food, the clothing, the shelter, the things you worry about every day. And Jesus just said, don't worry about all that. Don't prize all that. Seek first his kingdom, his righteousness. He'll take care of you. He'll preserve you. He'll care for you. Fix your eyes on him. So God's going to call David a man after his own heart. Turn, if you would, to 1 Samuel 16. That's actually where we'll start. God's going to call David a man after his own heart. In 1 Samuel 13 Samuel said to Saul, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. Saul was a man after the heart of the people. Saul was a man who served, really, his own desires for the glory of people. And they, he was the king they deserved, the king they wanted. And now God says, now I'm going to give you the king you don't deserve, the king that's better than you deserve the king that I want, the king who is after me, who pursues what I pursue, who loves what I love, who seeks what I want him to seek. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you've not kept what the Lord commanded you. So that's Samuel referring to David, the man God chose to replace Saul as king of Israel. He calls him a man after his own heart. I don't know about you, but... That would be a phrase that if God used to describe me, I'd just pass out with gladness. Even a question we could ask ourselves, what, how do we want God to know us? The world's consumed with how the world will know them. How will you be spoken of on social media? How will you be spoken of at your graveside? How will you be spoken of? How are you seen by people? And yet the question Scripture brings us back to is, How will God describe you? How will he see you in the end? So what a statement to say, this is a man after my own heart. Matthew 25, 21, where Christ is describing that day when we stand before the Lord. And some will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. That's, I think, what David understood. Those are the words he wanted to hear. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Jesus is using those words so that those will be the words we want to hear. And part of the good news we'll look at is what that doesn't mean is be sinless. It doesn't mean, okay, be so perfect, be so amazing by yourself that God just has to bring you into his presence. We'll see from the life of David, it's stained by sin. Sin's everywhere. You don't look at him and then look at Saul and go, okay, David just sinned a lot less. Now, what we'll see is God's going to make a very different set of promises to David. God's going to give him a very different kind of heart. God's going to pursue him in a very different kind of way. God's going to work in him a very different kind of repentance. So if you want a main point for today, you should see it there in your notes, that God seeks the hearts of his people and faithfully receives all who genuinely seek after his heart. God seeks the hearts of his people. It's what he wants. It's what he's after. And faithfully receives all who genuinely seek after his heart. And so he's going to use the life of David to make many points, but these points are going to be among them. And the first being that God sought David's heart. First time we're going to encounter David is in 1 Samuel 16. Hopefully you turn there. And in verse 1, where the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king from among his sons. So Saul's going to go to Bethlehem. He's going to approach the city. As he approaches the elders of the city in verse 4, going to come out and meet him trembling. Because for Samuel, who's judge and priest over Israel, for him just to show up at your town, that didn't always mean a good thing. You might be confronting something, so they come trembling. Do you come peaceably? Or is this war? And Samuel says, no, peaceably. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves. He calls Jesse and his family in particular to make sure to be at this feast. He's going to invite them to that sacrifice. Because he knows that, okay, there's a young man of... Yeah, these sons of Jesse that God has chosen for himself. And when they came, this is the sons of Jesse, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before me. Like firstborn, right out of the gate. Jesse shows up, here's his sons. And in verse 6, when they came, he looked at Eliab and thought, surely this has got to be the guy. He just looked the part. Tall, probably handsome, strong. You could tell this guy's a soldier. This guy's impressive. Look at what it says in verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I've rejected him. Isn't this is fascinating that after all that Samuel has gone through with Saul, after all that God has taught him about Saul, after all that's gone wrong with Saul, Saul still, or Samuel still misses it. He's still fooled by it. And what a lesson for all of us, right? We kind of know, does outward appearance really matter? No, but we're still fooled by it. Does outward stature attractiveness, beauty, appeal, especially in the eyes of the world, is it re- does, it, does God really care? Of course we know. Well, no, but we keep falling for it. We keep buying into it. We keep revolving our lives around it. We keep being enamored and impressed by it. So here's Samuel, the very prophet of God, the priest of God, the judge of God's people after everything he's gone through with Saul, after all that God has shown him, he still, he sees Eliam ilium and goes, this has got to be the guy. He's got the stature. He's got the look. He's got the outward appearance. And still God has to say, don't look at that. Don't be fooled by that. Don't look at what the world looks at. I've rejected him. This is not the one. You ever wonder, like, the disciples They're with Jesus day after day after day for over three years. And by the end of it all, they still don't get it. And it's tempting to think, man, those disciples, they're really stupid. Rather than see, actually there's something very fundamental about human nature that God's teaching us. This is just what we're like. We're that slow to get it. That should humble us. That should make us impressed with the patience of God. In many ways, you should go, wow, this is one patient God. He just has to repeat himself over and over again. He has to keep coming back to the same lessons. And here's one of them, that the Lord values spiritual condition over physical condition. Don't look at his height of his stature because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. If you want to have a prayer in your daily life, make that a prayer. Lord, help me see what you see. Help me value what you value. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Lord, help me value that about my life, heart, not outward appearance. Lord, help me value that in other people, heart, not outward appearance part of being a new creation in Christ, right? In 2 Corinthians 5, where Paul says, therefore, no longer do we regard anyone according to the flesh. What he means is we just don't regard anyone according to the outward form, to their physical appearance. We just don't buy into that. And so the church, of all places, ought to be a place that isn't fooled, that doesn't buy into the outward appearance trap, to the vanity trap, to how do people look and sound and perform externally, but the heart. This is in many ways why the nation of Israel, when Jesus showed up, just couldn't accept him, just couldn't receive him. Number one, he's from Nazareth, he's from Galilee, and even some of his disciples are like, does anything good come out of there? They're just so distracted by like, the city he's from. You think about it, even today, isn't that interesting when you hear it? Like somebody says, yeah, I'm from New York. And how many of you go, oh, goodness. Or you go to New York and you're like, yeah, I'm from Arkansas. And they go, oh, boy, need help reading the menu? There'll just be some dig, some stereotype, some about externals, about where even you're from. Well, Jesus shows up, son of a carpenter from Nazareth. Born in Bethlehem, Isaiah 53, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. It's the same language. God's like, yeah, you accept him, I reject him. I accept him, you reject him. Well, Jesus despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and is one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. So here, when God the Son takes on flesh, he's going to take on an unattractive form, an outwardly unimpressive form. We would have never looked on Jesus, not any of us, and said, surely the Lord's anointed is before me. Now it's John the Baptist that's like, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Everybody's like, Huh? That's why the spirit has to descend like a dove at his baptism and God has to speak from heaven, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Because none of us would have ever thought it, looking at him. God sees and values the heart. Does he want our bodies as well? Yes. But he knows that if he has our hearts, he'll get our bodies as well. Wherever your heart goes, your body will follow. Where your heart is, there your treasure will be. That's why he wants the heart, goes after the heart, redeems the heart, and he knows if he gets that, everything else is going to come. We naturally value physical condition over spiritual condition. Iliab, the firstborn of Jesse, impressed Samuel, probably everyone else as well. Just not God. God's not impressed with the outward form. Remember the story of the Tower of Babel where all the people come together and, say, hey, let's bake these bricks and make and build something that's going to make a name for ourselves. It's all the same language that God uses in Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 where he says, let us make, let us make, man in our image. And now all the people get together and say, well, let us make a tower and a name for ourselves. He said, let's make it, let's build it to the heavens. And the very next verse says, and the Lord came down to see what they were building. (laughs) What's his point? Well, God can see everything. Why would he use that language? Well, to make a point for us, yeah, I can't even see it from here. Yeah, your tower to the heavens, hold on, I got to come down there. It's so tiny. So he's always making a point. What you think is so great and so big to him is so small. Yet to us, the things that are so small to him are so great. So a word to parents, When, what is the focus of our teaching, our training, our encouraging, our guiding of our children? What do we focus on? What do we prioritize? What do we value? Where does our emotional energy go in our parenting? Do we pray most fervently? Do we labor most desperately for the hearts of our children, for their faith, for their love for God? Their love for people, for their worship, or their sports, their academics, their dress, their popularity, their fill-in-the-blank. So tempting. Or do you young people who are here, maybe teenagers in public schools or private schools, wherever you are, who are you trying to be? Where are you focusing your attention in your life? Is it to make the outer form impressive or the inner? Study hard, sure. Play hard, sure. Take care of your body, yes. But then to what ultimate end? Do you know that God seeks you? Does he have your heart? Does he have your loyalty? Does he have your worship? Is all that other stuff just means to serve him, means to love him, means to love others? God wants your faith, not your sports statistics. He wants your hope to be in him, not your grade point average. He wants your devotion, not your popularity. Doesn't make a lot of those other things all bad. It just means be careful when those become what you seek. Oh Lord, you told me to seek your face, therefore your face I will seek. It's David's words. Or a word to singles looking to be married. What do you believe makes you an attractive person? To what are you attracted in another person such that you're willing to marry them? Is it Christ in you and Christ in them? Or is it outward appearance? Is it earning power? Proverbs 31:30 Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. It's amazing. We can read that every single year and never believe it. We could say something very similar to men, not just to women: that charm is deceitful, (laughs) beauty is vain. Outward appearance, it's all empty. But to fear the Lord, that's praiseworthy. That's what the Lord looks at and goes, that's valuable. So hopefully you see you're not just going to wake up in the morning and naturally think that way. You're not just going to go out into the world and the world's going to help you think that way. Every day you're going to have to fight prayerfully, humbly, dependent upon God's grace and spirit to not buy into it. To truly live as if you're from another planet. To live as if your city isn't here. That your kingdom is of another world. That your king is on a different sphere. So Jesse cannot imagine, even by this time, that God or even Samuel would have any real interest in David, right? They're gonna walk all these sons of Jesse in front of Samuel. And God's gonna say, not him. Not him, not him, not him. And he's going to get to the end of them, down in you know, verse 11. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? Like Samuel brought, here's all his sons, walked them in front, it's none of them. And Jesse said, well, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. He's like, we didn't even bother to invite him. And we know you said for me to bring all my sons that they can participate, but we just assumed you didn't mean him. Like he's out with the sheep where he's always at. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and he brought him in. Now he was ruddy and he had beautiful eyes and he was handsome. So again, there's some of that external description. But time's going to tell what he really is like who he really is, what he's like on the inside. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. And they didn't even bother to invite David to the feast, but God knew where he was, and God was willing just to wait. 1 Corinthians 1, 27, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. It's a theme of the Bible. You can even see it right here. David's family's like, can't be him. Like, why? We're just going to leave him out in the field. No point in inviting him. The rest of Bethlehem would have thought something very similar. Even Samuel's going to be shocked. Because God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. That's this point. I'm going to purposely choose the youngest, the smallest, the least impressive of everybody. And I'm going to anoint him. I'm going to take him. He's going to be my guy. To put to shame your wisdom. To put to shame your sense of what strength is. So that nobody can boast before God. So when God's trying to send Moses back to Egypt to lead his people out, one of Moses' objections is, hey, I don't speak well. Like never have. People wonder, did he stutter? Was he was just either way he was a bad speaker. And interesting, what God doesn't say to Moses, Oh no, Moses, you're great. You're a great speaker. Basically God says, Well, yeah, I know. Who made your mouth? I did. Who opens up ears to hear? I do that. Moses like, God, I'm a terrible speaker, and God's like, Yeah, no kidding. I made you that way that's why I'm choosing you. That's why I'm sending you. So that when this is all done, there'll be no doubt who did it. And it'll be real clear. It wasn't you. It <laughs> wasn't your oratory. wasn't how great you were. There'll be no doubt when this whole thing is over and you come back here and worship me on the mountain that this was my grace. That this was my power. And so that's one of the reasons God yeah, just flips the whole world on its head. Is going to choose the despised things, the things that are low in the world, not impressive, and use them to bring about his purposes so that at the end of it all, nobody gets to boast in the presence of God. But then the Lord takes time to sanctify David's heart, just as he takes time to sanctify our hearts. First Samuel sixteen twelve, And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes, and he was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel arose and went to Ramah. Which is peculiar, how that verse ends. He arises, he anoints him, and Samuel just leaves. And we're like, well, he's king now, right? The Spirit of the Lord's going to rush on David. Even in the next verse, we're going to see that the Spirit of the Lord is going to depart from Saul. And then David just goes back to shepherd sheep. I mean, it's like, well, that was cool. I guess we'll go feed the animals it's gonna be seventeen years before David actually gets to the throne. Isn't that something? He's gonna anoint him king, Spirit of the Lord's gonna rush upon him, Spirit of the Lord's gonna leave Saul in seventeen years before he gets there. Seventeen years serving in Saul's court, seventeen years running for his life, seventeen years living in caves, seventeen years fighting the Lord's battles. 17 years in favor with the king, then out of favor with the king, then in favor with the king, then out of favor with the king. 17 years of just sanctification. So even though this is the man after God's own heart, this is the one God's chosen, there's work to do. There's preparation to do. There's transformation that he has in mind. There's training. And the Lord will do that with us as well, a lifetime sanctifying us, transforming us. I mean, if you're here and your faith is in Christ and your heart is Christ, united to Christ, then you're secure, you're his, you're his child. But you're not home yet, right? And every day feels like a war. Every day it's growing your faith. Every day the Lord is using in his providence circumstances, trials, and situations to conform you to the image of his son, to deepen your trust in him, to prepare you for heaven. And we have to ask ourselves, are we okay with that? Do you ever wonder, like, why is this taking so long? Why do I still struggle with this? Why do I feel so weak in these ways? And so I think it's encouraging to look and see this is how God's always done it. Moses, 40 years in Egypt, then 40 years in a wilderness. Then go back and bring the people out to spend 40 more years in a wilderness. Then you'll get to see the promised land and not go in. And God thinks we ought to be completely enthusiastic about that. But that's like a really great prize. So so much of life is clinging to promises. Hebrews 11 talks about that all of these, you know, that hall of faith just walks through all the saints and says, and none of these saw it. They died clinging to promises. They lived clinging to promises. So it's the same for us. That's why the Lord's after our hearts. To trust Him, to follow Him, even when everything around doesn't seem to be cooperating. Everything in the culture doesn't seem to be going in the right direction. Well, We're we're meant to live by faith, not by sight. By promises, not by circumstantial ease. Romans 7.4, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you might belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit to God. So what Christ did when he died for us, when the Spirit gave us a new heart, united us to Jesus, is he took us as his own. That's why Paul can say, likewise, my brothers, my sisters, we're family, You now died to the law through the body of Christ so that you might belong to another. You're not your own. Your life's been bought with a price. And that's some of what's happening here at Bethlehem. Samuel's going to anoint him. God's going to take him. He's mine. I've accepted him. He now belongs to him. And that doesn't now mean everything's going to be smooth sailing. So we're all sitting here this morning, which means for the time being, he has our bodies. But does he have our hearts? Like even as we move into the morning service and begin to sing, like, okay, he'll have our voices, but will he have our hearts? As we listen to the preaching of the word, okay, he'll have our ears hearing, but will he have our hearts? Or after like five minutes, are we just like, eh, it's kind of boring. This is sometimes the danger of even making sort of this a performance, the lights, the smoke, the music, the impressive, the video, the, where the outward form takes the form of the world because that's what keeps people's attention. It's no wonder God's not particularly interested in that. But the simplicity of the preached word, the simplicity of songs for the congregation to lift their voices in praise of God, the simplicity of just humble prayers to God, And all of those are meant to be training us, preparing us, getting more of our hearts to him. So I don't know about you, but that can be a battle for me each week. It can be a battle. You're 30 minutes in, and it's like, oh, boy, what else do I have to do today? Or, oh, what are all the tasks? Or I'm like, oh, what do I need to, what? And you have to pray, okay, Lord, help me be here. Help my heart be in it. That's the spiritual war that we're waging. It's not against flesh and blood, right? It's not flesh and blood against flesh and blood. It's spirit against spirits. It's the invisible things, the loyalties of our heart against rulers and principalities and powers in heavenly places. And that's why we need to put on the full armor of God. Psalm 43, where David prays, send out your light and your truth, let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God, my exceeding joy. That's what he called God, my exceeding joy. He had his heart. So are we willing to gladly endure 17 years of affliction or more and persecution or more so that the dross of our souls would be melted away and pure faith in God would be developed? David prayed in Psalm 139, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That was his prayer. Is that your prayer? Is that my prayer? Lord, just search me. Try me. See if there's anything in me that isn't pleasing to you. And then lead me in the way everlasting. Do whatever you got to do to burn it off. Do whatever you got to do to purify it. God wanted David's heart, the whole thing, and David gave it. All his battles and victories, all his sacrifices and offerings, all his feasts and celebrations, they were all just means for David to give himself to God. But not only did David give his heart to God, David also sought after the heart of God. This brings us to our second big point this morning. There's really many things that we can look at as examples of it. I think it begins with this idea that David desired the glory of God. So look at 1 Samuel 17, this famous story of his battle with Goliath, that David desired the glory of God. That Jesse, the father of David, is going to send David to the front lines to inquire about his brothers and bring them food. So all the Philistines are going to stand on one mountain in verse 3. All the Israelites are going to stand on another mountain, in verse 3, and they're going to be across from each other waiting for battle. And one thing that would have been common in these kinds of ancient battles is sometimes a champion would go out from one side and challenge the greatest champion of the other side, and then those two would fight. And then whichever champion prevailed, their nation essentially prevailed, rather than all the bloodshed of the battle. Just two guys would fight, and then whoever that champion was that won, the other nation would now be subject to the victorious nation. Well, that's what Goliath is going to do. He's going to walk out as the champion of the Philistines, nine and a half feet tall. His coat of mail in verse 5 weighs 125 pounds. Think about something that's 125 pounds. Imagine putting, wrapping that around you. That's what he's walking out with. He's got a spear that the head of the spear weighs 15 pounds. Go get a dumbbell that weighs 15 pounds. Imagine sticking that on the end of a piece of wood. And what kind of wood that's got to be to hold that? Well, that's just one spear. He's got javelin. He's got a sword. He's got chainmail. He's got a helmet, nine and a half feet tall. Comes out and just starts taunting the Israelites, taunting the people of God. And says, and all the people of Israel, they're all the soldiers, all the army, they're just trembling. They're afraid. Verse 12, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Well, Jesse's going to send David to go inquire of his brothers. Three of his older brothers are there on the battle lines. David's going to go to see how they're doing. And in being there, he's going to hear Goliath and his taunts. Goliath's going to come out day after day, taunting And David's going to overhear it. So then in verse 26, his response is going to be, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? He just overhears him taunting, and he's like, whoa, what on earth? Who is this unbelieving, godless man who would actually taunt the people who represent Yahweh? The people that Yahweh has chosen. In other words, notice the theme. David is not shocked by Goliath's stature, but by his irreverence. That's what stands out to him. Nine and a half feet tall, all the armor, all the weapons. David doesn't even know. It's like, that's not what he sees. That's not what amazes him. What amazes him is the irreverence. Wow, the audacity to revile the creator of the world. Everyone is saying, look at him, he's scary. David's saying, listen to him, he's blaspheming the Lord. You see how they're two different places, how they're interpreting what's going on. So David's like, well, I'll go fight him. Because David's not looking at the outside of the man, but at his heart exposed by his reviling of God. Everyone else can't see past the outward form of Goliath. Everyone else can't see past the danger to their own lives, the danger to their own glory. David could not care less. He just cannot believe anyone on earth would so defiantly and proudly raise their fist against God. That's what captures him. So he quickly volunteers. I'll go fight him. Because for David, life and death was about the glory of God. That's what we're meant to see. It's about God's glory, not his own. they are going to try to throw him some armor on him and the Lord and his providence, make sure there's no armor to fit David, no typical weapons that are going to work. So David's going to just grab a staff, a few rocks, and a sling, and go out to face Goliath. I mean, just wearing a, whatever a shepherd would be wearing in the field, carrying whatever staff he would be carrying, some rocks and a bag and a sling. Of course, Goliath sees it and is like, what on earth? You come out here with little pebbles, to which David says in chapter 17, verse 45, well, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Again, he just couldn't get past the fact that Goliath had defied God. It just bothered him. It just bothered him. He's that concerned with the glory of God. We'll come back to that. Secondly, David sought the presence of God to be satisfied in God. It was just all about God. God. Listen to how David spoke about being in the presence of God. Psalm 27.4, One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. It's the one thing he asked for, one thing he sought, just to be with God, to hear God, to dwell with God forever. Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there's fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. He believed that. That made him very immune to just the fears of losing stuff in the world. That's why he can charge out and face Goliath. He really, We'll see in a little bit, he really believes God's going to deliver him. But even if he doesn't, God's going to deliver him like whether it's going to deliver him from death or deliver him through death. Either way, he knows he's going to be with the Lord. Psalm 63, verse 1, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water, so I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. What's the same? Do we believe that His steadfast love is better than life, better than anything in life? So yeah, David can run to a battle line and put his own life on the line because it's about the glory of God, the presence of God, the power of God, and that His steadfast love—it's better than life itself. He couldn't imagine a better place to live than in the presence of God. And again, this will be so important to understand David's repentance next week. That his repentance wasn't just in a vacuum. His repentance wasn't just an artificial thing. It wasn't just going through motions. It was about restoring him to the presence of God. Restoring him to the purity of fellowship with God. Removing every obstacle there might be to his communion with the Lord. Even though he he felt united to God... In many ways, through faith. Yet that that union, though preserved, the communion with God could change based on, okay, if I'm walking in sin, then this communion is going to be interrupted, and repentance is a means to restore that communion. So we see the context of all that was how much he valued God, the presence of God. It's also why, point C there, David refused to exchange the glory of God for idols. This will be something that distinguishes David from many of the other kings, that because he desired the glory of God and desired the presence of God, by the grace of God, he never went after idols. He couldn't stomach false gods, especially in his own life. He couldn't, Romans one twenty three exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And so David's reign is actually defined by his faithfulness to Yahweh and his refusal to go after other gods. Just wouldn't do it. Psalm 101, David wrote, I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. I hate the work of those who fall away, it shall not cling to me. He's talking about idols. I will not set before me anything that is worthless. And act as if it's worthy. Act as if it's worthy of my affection. Worthy of my devotion. Worthy of my worship. And that's why when later kings, kings that are going to come after David, they're all going to be compared to David on this, real, on this dimension. Were they faithful to Yahweh or did they go after idols? 1 Kings 11.4, when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. There's the comparison. So one way we can think about David being a man after God's own heart is he didn't go after idols. It's one of the things that, that it means. Or King Asa. It says, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord as David his father had done. He put away the male cult prostitutes out of the land and removed all the idols that his fathers had made. So you see the comparison? Kings, they went after idols unlike David. Kings who removed idols and worshiped Yahweh like David. David trusted the God of Israel and refused to go after other gods such that all the kings after him would be compared to him on these grounds. And that's one of the reasons why when he goes out and Goliath is taunting Israel and saying everything, it's like Philistine's gods against Yahweh. And David's like, just drove him crazy that nobody's doing anything about this. For David, it was about the glory of God, about the true worship of the worthy God, about being zealous for the name and reputation of God. That's one of the things that God used in his life to make him a man after God's own heart. This brings us to the final point, and that's that David trusted the salvation of God. Go back to 1 Samuel 17, verse 37, as he's facing off with Goliath, where he says, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. David trusted in God's salvation. In this case, it's this physical salvation in this battle. Yet we'll see that that sort of maps on in David's life to his understanding that, and God will save me from the greatest perils of his judgment, the greatest perils of his wrath. Because there is a giant that's bigger than Goliath, there is someone scarier than Goliath, there is a wrath that's greater than Goliath. And that's the one David's like, that's what I really need saving from. Psalm 144.1 David says, blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. And that's amazing too that David even thought, even my ability to fight battles physically is God's grace. Even the ability for me to win victories is God's grace. Blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. It's even a great verse for you to Paste on your wall at your workplace. In whatever work you do, whatever vocation you have. You even think, it's not just that he's training you spiritually, he's training you in everything to live for his glory. He's the one that trains your hands for war and your fingers for battle. He views God as his helper and God and his deliverer. That's why he's gonna to say to Goliath in 1 Samuel 17:45: You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Goliath brought a spear. David brought a name. Goliath trusted in his sword. David trusted in his God. And so David's going to run. It says he runs to the battle line. Unafraid, just runs. Runs. Puts a stone in his sling and hurled it at the giant. And then let's look at what Scripture says in verse 49. And the stone sank into his forehead. How does that happen? The idea is he throws it, it hits, but then it sinks in. And he fell on his face to the ground. I think the, the words leave no doubt, yeah, God did it. David throws it, David hits, then God added a little extra pressure. In 1 Samuel 15, 12, after victory over the Amalekites, Saul is going to erect a monument to himself. David will do no such thing. He will boast in God. He will boast in God's salvation. He will boast in God's deliverance. That's where it's important to see that most importantly, David, I think, is going to realize that deliverance from Goliath isn't the biggest deliverance that he's going to need. He realizes if he really needs deliverance from anything, it's from God himself. Listen to Psalm 27, verses seven through nine. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, this is David, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek? Then he says, hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not. O oh God of my salvation. So we started with that verse. Oh Lord, you, you said to seek your face. My heart says to you, your face I seek. But then it immediately creates a problem in David's mind. That, but hold on, there, don't hide your face from me. Don't turn me away in your anger. Well, what anger? Anger it is sin. Oh you who have been my help, don't, don't cast me off. Don't forsake me. Meaning what? Don't leave me to my sin. Don't leave me to my fate. You're my salvation. So all the earthly battles, all the earthly deliverances were, for David, were just pictures, were just symbolic, were just visible experiences of what he really needed invisibly, which was God, not just to save him from lions and bears and Goliath and Saul and enemies, but to save him from God. Because David can't fathom losing God. Salvation was not only from God, but to God. And even more, he's not going to look to himself to do it. He's not going to look to himself to reconcile it. He's going to look ahead to a Messiah that God is going to promise. Psalm 1611, Ryan Troglin preached on this a few weeks ago. Where David cried out to God, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. And in Acts 2, Peter's going to actually explain what David meant, what David saw coming. Peter's going to say in Acts 2, 29, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did he his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. In other words, David looked ahead and saw Christ, this Messiah, is coming. Even when God's going to make a covenant with David in 2 Samuel, that I'm going to give you someone on your throne and he'll reign forever, David knows that's not any old human. That's not just any old descendant. That's a very special kind of descendant that God's actually going to put on the throne who's going to reign forever. So being himself a prophet, David's looking ahead and seeing, okay, there's a Messiah, there's a king, there's someone coming behind me who's not like me, who's going to deliver me, redeem me, purchase for me forgiveness. He's going to be the key to me being reconciled to God. He looked to the one who would pay for his sins, who would deliver him from wrath, who would provide him with righteousness before God. So David knows he's not going to reach a certain religious score in the eyes of God, and then God will accept him. Rather, God had chosen David, placed his steadfast love upon David, gave David promises, and it's in those promises of a coming Savior that's what David's hoping in. That's another thing that makes him a man after God's own heart. He trusted in God's salvation, trusted in a righteousness that would be given to him, imputed to him, trusted in a penalty that would be paid for him. So it's going to kind of set the stage for where we'll go next week when we really look at David's life of repentance and David and God's faithfulness to him that's going to shine through his story. But, yeah, any kind of questions or comments? We have a little bit of time just to, for any discussion there might be. Questions, comments, thoughts, reflections? Go ahead, here. How was when first my goodness, that's a good question. I want to say late teens, if I recall rightly, 17, 18, 19. I think he was he was young. Yeah, I want to say 17. 17 is the number that comes to my mind, but I may be wrong. Does anybody else here know how old David was at this point? Yeah, so it's, yeah, I'm thinking 17-ish at this point. Yeah. You had a question? Yeah. Yeah, the question me: what does it mean when it says in Scripture that, yeah, you know, this king's heart was wholly true or was even, you know, pleasing to God? He did what was right in the eyes of God. And I think the first thing it means is this is a king who lived by faith, like who related to God through faith, who in faith worshipped God, not idols, who was faithful to the Lord. And we look back now through the New Testament, the New Covenant, through New Testament Scripture— We see that even then, it was the Spirit of God that was enabling these kings to trust in God and to be faithful to God, but it was still by grace, and it was still them trusting in his promises. And so the fact that they were wholly true doesn't mean they never sinned, doesn't mean they never wandered, it means their heart was really given to him in faith. Yeah, Cliff? Cliff? Yeah, good question. So Cliff was saying, you know, that someone might say, okay, eat kale because it's good for you. And so we do. But we kind of know as we're chewing it, okay, this is part lettuce, part rubber. (laughs) Is this really that good for me? And so it's hard for your heart to be in it, right? For your heart to be in that. And so how do you do what is good and right, what you kind of know on one level, this is best, but yet, your affections aren't all there. And so similar with God that, okay, you said to seek your face, I'm going to seek your face, but there's a part of my heart that just isn't in it. So how do we walk with God? How do we follow God when, especially on those days when our hearts don't seem to be in it? Yeah, I remember C.S. Lewis had an interesting kind of take on some of that. He said, you know, there's two sort of legs in the Christian life. One is devotion, the other is duty. And he said, and duty is a crutch for devotion. He said, and sometimes you need a crutch. And sometimes you push through by duty, praying, Lord, improve my devotion, change my affections. Then he said, But if you spend your whole life in crutches, then something's wrong with your legs. <laughs> you know, because he really said, okay, devotion, affection, love. Does that kind of desire is the real engine, the real fuel that's meant to make the Christian life go. And so, but I would argue in many ways, sanctification is about the growing of our affections for God. It's not that you come to faith in Christ and you're just given a full dose of perfected affections for God for the rest of your life. Now, you're given the seeds, you're given the kernels, you're given a new life, it's there, a new heart. But now the rest of our life is spent really learning that kind of love for God, learning the sweetness of fellowship with him, learning that his word really is sweeter than honey, that his presence really, really, his steadfast love really is better than life. And so there's a lot of that. We go, okay, I think I know that. I want that. I want to believe it. But Lord, help my unbelief. And so each day is this mix of devotion and duty, this mix of real heart affection where we're in it and real grinding it out by his strength and by his grace. And praying all the while, Lord, make me want it more. Make me desire it more. And God really does have a way of arranging things in our lives and people in our lives and the church around our lives and providence and events in our lives that will train us and teach us that. That how many times have we gone back and taken a bite out of that rotten apple and gone, you know, this really is gross. Sin gets grosser every day. (laughs) And Christ gets more beautiful every day. And that really is, to me, the encouragement in the Christian life. It's not, are you perfected, but are you closer today than you were five years ago? I think one of the terrible ways that we think about, sort of, and I hear witnessing talked about in the world, or even witnessing for Christ, it's like, it's what I call cross-sectional comparison, is you take this Christian, and you compare them to this non-Christian, or this group of Christians, and compare them to these, and go, okay, are they better than them? And if they're better than them, then the gospel's plausible. Or we'll think, okay, we've got to be witnesses for Christ, we've got to look better than the world does. When I when I'm not sure that's a great way to think about it. What is better to look at is, okay, you today, what are you compared to what you were 20 years ago? What are you compared to where you were a decade ago? Imagine what you would be without Jesus. And imagine what that non-Christian would be with Jesus. <laughs> That's the better comparison. Because there's just gonna be some followers of Christ that their starting point is way back. The particular world God saved them out of, the particular history that they bring in, the particular struggles that they struggle with are just more explicitly out there. And you might have non-Christians that have lives that look pretty put together, that are pretty well-ordered that seem to be pretty self-controlled. And so to compare that non-Christian to this Christian is the wrong comparison. Better, imagine what this Christian would look like if Jesus hadn't redeemed him. And imagine what a non-believer would look like if Christ redeemed him. And so that's what we see in Scripture, is the trajectory of each individual life and soul and what God's doing in them. It's looking at what Peter is in the book of Acts compared to what he was in the Gospel of Mark. You're like, oh, wow, this is a different guy. Not comparing Peter to Paul, but Peter to Peter. And so it's similar in our lives. It's, okay, are your affections for him today greater than they were 10 years ago? Is your love for him growing? Is your delight in his people growing? Is your hatred of sin deepening? Is your faith expanding? Does God have you on a trajectory of transformation? That's, I think, where we're meant to see the encouragement. That's what we're meant to be praying for each and every day. Well, let me pray for us now. Well, Father, it is our desire and our prayer that you would give us these kinds of hearts to seek your face, to long for your presence, to see you as our exceeding joy, to love the world less, to hate sin more, to delight in your presence more deeply, more constantly, for more of our hearts to be given over to you, to more of our hearts to be given to you in worship that you would protect us from idols, that you would protect us from the evil one, that you would protect us from the deceits of this world, that you would convince us that you are better treasure, That you would convince us that you are the true prize of this life, that you would grow our love for one another, that you would help us to stir one another up to love and good deeds, that we would even do that now this morning in Christ's name. Amen.